Two and a Half Admins, episode 74. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, your customary plug, Alan, is the birth of Unix. Yeah, so continuing our kind of history series, uh, we have the birth of Unix. So if you're interested in how that happened and how we eventually got into having things like BSD and Linux, then you can go ahead and check that out. All right, well, link in the show notes as usual. So the EU wants to build its own DNS infrastructure. And of course, they want to put in some filtering capabilities. Yeah, at first I was very worried about it. And then I was like, oh, some of that's a good idea. And then they're like, but yeah, the filtering, that's that sounds like a bad plan. But I guess the most important takeaway is that they're not mandating that anybody use it yet. <laughs> so who knows what they will do in the future. But... It seems their big concern actually is just seeing all DNS being uh, recursive resolving being concentrated into basically Google and Cloudflare and only a couple other places like uh, Cisco's OpenDNS and so on. And they are like, you know, that's a lot of concentration into only a couple of companies, none of which the EU really has a good lever over. I mean, they're basically just building their own OpenDNS with blackjack and hookers, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's the same deal, you know, it's a, it's, it's an easily accessible DNS service with some built-in filtering. And if you don't like the filtering, don't use it. I can't be mad at that personally. Yeah. So DNS for EU, as it will be called, is currently in the project planning phases. And they're looking to uh, partner with some technology companies to build a sprawling infrastructure to serve all 27 member states. And it wants a EU-based centrally managed DNS in order to avoid the consolidation in the recursive resolvers. I think the article makes a very good point, though. The reason why a lot of people in Europe have switched to using the open resolvers from the likes of Google and Cloudflare and so on is because the recursive resolvers provided by their ISPs implement all of this filtering mandated by the EU that blocks access to sites like Sci-Hub. And if DNS4EU is just going to do the same thing, I don't know how they're quite going to convince people to switch to it. Although it uh, sounds like the main goal for this right now is for EU large organizations and non-governmental and governmental bodies and so on to use it. And it's you know supposed to block resolution of bad domains that host malware and cybersecurity threats. Of course, they're like, this filtering capability will be built using threat intelligence fees provided by our trusted partners, which while may include national cert teams, I'm guessing threat intelligence means, you know, subscribing to one of the big security companies. That is the exact same verbiage I've heard out of a bajillion little IoT startups that claim to have the magic tiny little plastic box that sits in your home and protects you from all the things. I have tested lots of those things, sometimes publicly, uh, sometimes, you know, private consulting, and uh, they don't really accomplish much. You know, when your testing methodology is, well, all right, then let me harvest some of the crap from my most recent emails and just click the shiny links in a nice sandboxed VM connected to this thing. <laughs> Guess what? You get infected with all the nasty stuff. Now, don't get me wrong. There, there is a benefit from this kind of thing. But the important thing, I think, is not to overstate it. The benefit from doing this kind of filtering and trying to block out, uh, you know, malware command and control networks, it's not going to keep you from getting stuff getting hit by stuff that's, you know, new today or probably even new this week. 
what it really does is it shortens the window and it forces the attackers to be more agile and keep updating their command and control structure where without this kind of filtering that was, you know, just blocking out all this stuff as it popped up, the attackers would have to do less work. They wouldn't have to be so agile. They could just set up their crap in some bulletproof network and, you know, Kazakhstan or China or Russia or wherever that didn't care about what nasty shenanigans they got up to and just be there forever. If something wasn't out there willing to say, you know what? Nah, I'm not talking to that subnet. That subnet is bad news. Yeah, and like that's exactly what I was thinking is that, you know, this isn't going to be, you know, very quickly blocking stuff. The threats in your email from two weeks ago will now have DNS blocks, but that's not going to do much good for most people. But the concern, though, is that they will use it to, you know, enforce some of the other things that you use, tried to block like pirate websites and so on. That might be the main reason so many people are going around local ISPs, recursive resolver and bothering to manually configure using some other resolver. I can't speak really concretely about any given European ISP, but if they're anything like American ISPs, the ISP managed DNS resolvers usually suck. Like, I mean, above and beyond any filtering issues, it just, I can't tell you how many issues I've solved for how many people and organizations simply by changing their DNS from whatever crap the ISP delivers via DHCP to, you know, 8.8.8.8 or 4.2.2.4 or 1.1.1.1. And all of a sudden, hey, how about that? Websites begin loading immediately instead of literally half the time you're waiting like two and a half seconds just to get a DNS resolution. Right. One or two timeouts. And then finally, the third try, you get a DNS resolution. I swear some of these ISPs haven't updated the servers that they used to serve DNS in like 10 years. You know, the other thing is if the EU does decide to get more authoritarian with this and start being like, you know, no, you have to use our special EU name servers. I hate to be dismissive, but I'm going to be at least a little dismissive. They're going to find out how hard it is to keep people from tunneling outside the network to get their DNS from wherever they want it. That's particularly going to be difficult, you know, with technologies like DNS over HTTPS, where you can't necessarily really tell that easily that it's DNS in the first place, even without a VPN. Yeah. I get the feeling they're going to try and sell this with GDPR. This is going to be GDPR compliant. Well, I think part of it is that uh, I think at some point they're going to say that all the ones run by somebody who's not in the EU are not GPDR compliant. And so here's one that is. Uh, And it's a little funny when they have to make their own version of some internet infrastructure because it's the only way any thing will ever comply with the crazy law that they thought of. Well, that kind of leads into an email we got from Ray. He said, Many in the privacy community see VPN services like ProtonVPN or Molvad as must-have saying that your devices should be connected to them at all times to keep yourself secure online. However, as a sysadmin and privacy nut myself, I have a hard time recommending this practice to friends and family. I subscribe to a VPN provider and use it for specific purposes, but it doesn't feel right to me to indiscriminately forward all my traffic to a third party that I know very little about. While I don't love my ISP, at least they're operating within the regulations of the country they're based in, Why should I trust a VPN provider to maintain my privacy any more than an ISP? My real question is, do either of you actually keep a persistent connection to a VPN service on your devices? Why or why not? To a third-party VPN service, no, I do not. Uh, My mobile devices have a persistent always-on WireGuard connection to a server that I manage out in the cloud, And they do that because God only knows when they're going to be on some Wi-Fi network somewhere that is just incredibly sketchy. 
And that prevents me from having to worry so much about issues like rubber ducky attacks, where somebody mimics the Wi-Fi network that should be in the Starbucks or McDonald's or hotel or whatever. And, you know, then they try to hijack your traffic. That gets a whole lot harder when all your traffic is going over, you know, a WireGuard connection or an open VPN connection or what have you. As far as the third-party services go, there is a really compelling reason beyond it being easier technically to use a third-party VPN service. And that is when you're doing something sketchy. If you're bypassing copyright, let's say, BitTorrent or uh, just even just a download from a sketchy website, whatever, and you're worried about the man figuring out who you are and a copyright notice showing up at your doorstep, using a third-party VPN may help hide your tracks a bit because all they see at the honeypot or, you know, when they join the torrent to monitor who all is connected to the swarm is they see a Mulvad IP or Proton VPN IP. And at that point... If they want to try to get down to you, the actual infringer, they've got to reach out in some fashion to the third-party VPN provider. Now, if you're unlucky, it's going to be one that turns out to be kind of buddy-buddy with the cops and is willing to grass you out in a heartbeat. If it's a more reputable VPN provider, more privacy-focused, like Mulvad is very highly recommended. There are a few others that are. Uh, you want to look for their records of fighting subpoenas and refusing to provide docs. You want to look for warrant canaries. So ideally what happens is, you know, the VPN provider tells them to pack sand. They can't get anything out of the VPN provider. So all they know is, you know, one of all the people connected to that VPN provider downloaded the torrent. If they're not logging, then even when the VPN provider complies, if they don't have those logs, you know, it's too late once it's been, you know, 15 minutes or whatever, you still can't tell who it actually was. That's what you're hoping for. Now, you don't get that if you're running your own VPN. Like if you've got a WireGuard instance up in Linode and you connect, you know, your tablet, your phone or your computer at home, whatever, and you go hit a torrent and, you know, Johnny FBI is also connected to that swarm and he's monitoring everybody who's on there and watching for when they start uploading chunks themselves. Well, they're going to see that comes from that Linode IP address. They're going to talk to Linode and subpoena them and say, hey, illegal activity comes from this IP. Who owns it? And, you know, Linode or whoever your provider is, is going to immediately say, oh, yeah, it's this guy. If anything, you're actually, you stick out more when you're doing that. So those are basically your two reasons for wanting to use a VPN at all. Either because you're doing something sketchy, in which case you'd better be using, you know, a massively trafficked VPN provider that you're not running yourself, or just escaping a potentially untrusted network, in which in which case I would argue the best practice is to use, you know, an, an inexpensive VM at a very reputable provider where you can feel pretty confident that, you know, they're not just letting employees sniff the network or whatever. There is the other geofence argument, like if I wanted to watch the cricket, for example. True, but that also falls under the category of sketchy crap and, you know, trying to violate, you know, intellectual property, whatever. Yeah. And whether you like it or not, I'm not telling you you have to like it. I'm absolutely not trying to tell you I'm championing it. But the fact of the matter is that the providers don't want you hopping the geofences. And if you are hopping the geofences, you are by definition doing the shady thing where you're trying to pretend that you're somewhere that you're not. And again, in that case, I cannot recommend a particular, and I will not recommend a particular VPN provider for that. Some of the third-party VPN providers are better than others, but basically in order to win that game, they have to be constantly playing a shell game with various subnets because as quick as they start letting people uh, you know, VPN in from the United States to the UK, for example, to watch BBC content or whatever that's not available in the United States. The 
provider starts seeing that these IP addresses are getting the content outside the range they're supposed to go and they block list it. This happens pretty rapidly within a day or two. So if the VPN provider isn't constantly keeping on top of this and shifting from one subnet to another subnet until the blocks expire and, you know, blah, 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 you're going to be very frustrated. It's not going to work. In practice, I would argue that even the best of them at doing this it's still going to be frustrating. If you're just thinking, I'm going to pay five bucks a month and I can be anywhere in the world I want and watch any of the streaming TV I want and there'll be no problems, I don't think you're going to be a happy camper. Yeah, like I know online video streaming providers are like, we know that people hop the geofence, but if the VPN providers could stop advertising that as a feature because every time the media rights people see that, they complain at us about it and then we have to try to play whack-a-mole with the VPNs. It's like, if the VPN providers just wouldn't advertise that as the reason to have a VPN, then we wouldn't have to care about it so much. But because it gets the rights holders up in arms, now we have to care about it and try to fight this arms battle between the streaming providers and the VPN providers. But yeah, I think to Jim's point, part of it is you have to look at why you want to use a VPN. If it's, you know, Jim's case of just, I don't trust the network where I am, like the Wi-Fi at the Starbucks, then yeah, a VPN makes a lot of sense there. And whether that's a homegrown thing like what Jim's doing or one of the public providers. And then there's the geo hopping and, and so on. And again, that one's not so much about privacy and security as just about getting around the geofence. If your concern is literally that your ISP or somebody along the line to your ISP or from your ISP is trying to wiretap you or something, then obviously you want to have a VPN that's on all the time, partly because you don't want it to be obvious when you just switched from I'm not doing anything shady to, oh, I'm using the VPN now because I'm doing (laughs) something shady. And then going back to not doing anything shady, that kind of stands out a little bit. And the other reason is just if you're worried the biggest problem with VPNs is some kind of data leak, whether it's, uh, you know, a DNS query that's going not through the VPN or, or somehow something you're doing that is going across the VPN is somehow communicating your original IP address or your MAC address or your location or something that's causing it to give away information that someone could use to basically pierce the veil of the VPN. And so by doing it all the time, you reduce the risk of some traffic related to what you were trying to do on the VPN goes out through not the VPN at the same time and allows somebody to maybe correlate a bunch of that to to pierce the veil of the VPN. Although I, I also just find the concept of a privacy community to be interesting. It's like, if you're trying to be so secret, why are you talking to a bunch of other people about your secretness? <laughs> kind of reminds me of, uh, you know, before Spectrum Bottom, the major cable internet provider in my region of the United States is Time Warner Cable. And I don't know if Spectrum still uses these folks or not, but like Time Warner didn't want to hire their own installers. They always subcontracted install work. Usually they would sub it out to a company that themselves then subbed it out to individuals, just whoever would show up with a light pickup truck and claim they knew what to do with a drill. It's pretty much good enough. The largest one of those companies in my specific uh, metro area is uh, an outfit called Lone Wolf Communications. And all the trucks are like, they've got stickers on the side that say, Lone Wolf Communications, join our team. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good one. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A to get started with $100 free credit. From their award-winning support offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. 
Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. Linode offers great price-to-performance value for all compute instances, including GPUs, as well as block storage, Kubernetes, and more. Linode makes cloud computing fast, simple, and affordable, allowing you to focus on your projects, not your infrastructure. So go to linode.com slash 25A, create a free account with your Google or GitHub account, or your email address, and you'll get $100 in credit. That's linode.com slash 25A. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. You can go to 2.5admins.com slash support to learn more. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send in your feedback or your questions for Jim and Alan, show at 2.5admins.com. And another perk of being a patron is you get to skip the queue, which is what Craig has done. He writes... When each of you set up a new machine from scratch, do you have an automated way you prefer to install software and set up things? For example, the use of bash scripts, Ansible, dot files, a combination, or something else? Just curious on how each of you approach your setups for a fresh install. Well, I mean, a new machine from scratch is, uh, that, that's a pretty broad spectrum we're talking about there. Are we talking desktop, laptop, tablets, mail servers, web servers, monitoring, you know, uh, the answer is different depending on what type of machine you're talking about. Yeah, like with my servers, generally the only thing that I keep in my home directory is one dot file for my shell. And I just copy it off whatever server I remember the name of most recently because my file's the same on all of them. And I don't think it's changed in 10 years. <laughs> for me, uh, you know, if it's a personal machine, everything's just set up from scratch. Um, I actually, I'm extremely paranoid about SSH keys and I do not have the same SSH key on multiple machines. So, you know, as far as that goes, it's generated a new SSH key for that machine. And for any, de for any devices that machine should be able to connect to with a key, copy the new key into that machine's authorized yada, yada, yada. And then when I decom that machine, I revoke that key from the authorized keys, you know, on the resources it used to be able to access. And as far as servers, a lot of them, it's still generally from scratch. I mean, apt package management it's it's already basically automated installs for most of the things I care about. I mean, where I can just say like apt install LZOP and buffer PV, uh, you know, QMU KVM, you blah, 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 and hit enter and it installs like all the crap. It's kind of as automated as I need it to be. And I'd like to keep it fresh in my mind what packages I actually care about. It keeps you more in touch with what's going on in the machine for things that are a little bit both complex and cookie cutter, I guess. Like you deploy a lot of them and they're a giant pain to set up and you don't want to do it. For me, that's usually going to be something that's done in a virtual machine. And I generally approach that with gold images. Um, if it's something that I don't want to keep doing over and over and over again, like for example, just getting through the initial Ubuntu server install. I will absolutely at, um, you know, at each new environment that I'm working on, if there's not already a gold image of the most recent Ubuntu server sitting on the virtualization host, when I do my first VM install with Ubuntu server, before I do anything else with it, I shut it down and I copy off the QCOW2 file into my, uh, you know, gold images data set on that server. And then I fire it back up again and change the host name and start installing packages or whatever. So then the next time that I want an Ubuntu VM on that particular host, rather than walking my way through the install all the way again, I can just copy that QCOW2 file into a new data set, wrap an XML around it, boot it up, and I'm off to the races. Yeah, uh, at Scaling, we do something similar for servers. We have a, a gold image that's basically a ZFS send file. 
we use a bit of tooling to create them from scratch each time uh, we want them instead of having to you know monkey around with the VM because ours is mostly real hardware. But basically, we boot off of a little ISO image via IPMI, connect to the network, and then just partition the disk. And it uh, basically just does wget pipe zfs receive and overwrites the pool on the disk with a golden image of what exactly the server should be. And then asks, you know, what do you want the host name to be and what's my IP address? And then reboot and you have a server. I got to admit, Alan, I'm kind of jealous of that. Uh, for the most part, I don't really care that much about ZFS on root because I consider all the stuff in root to be pretty ephemeral and throw away and I can put it back in 15 minutes from scratch anyway. But that does sound rather nice to be able to provision bare metal that way with just piping something to ZFS receive. Yeah. And then when it's time to upgrade the OS, we just we make a different image that's just the new root environment, not the whole pool. And pipe that over. And then we use um, ZFS boot once to say, OK, next time you reboot, try the new version. If it doesn't work, it'll fall back to the old one. I just have to power cycle the server and it goes back to the previous version of the OS. But the upgrade never fails for us. So and then I have the new version. So each time I want a newer version, whether it's just a couple security patches or like going from, you know, 12.2 to 13.0, it's just shell script that pipes the right image into ZFS receive and voila, new version. My understanding is there's a there's a pretty good project for uh, Ubuntu and Debian and similar right now that that you can use to to get reliable ZFS booting. But I haven't played with it yet. And Ubuntu's like, God bless them for all the integration they've done. And I, I don't mean that sarcastically, but the only real ZFS booting integration they've done is very much aimed at desktops and goes in really very different directions than I want to. One of these days, I'd really like to see one of the major Linux distributions integrate something like ZFS boot menu. That is, you know, more of a FreeBSD-like experience where it's pretty basic. It's not trying to reinvent everything. It just lets you reliably boot from uh, from ZFS. But this comes back to what we were talking about on Late Night Linux Extra, Alan, when you came on and, and told us about FreeBSD. FreeBSD is a real first-class ZFS experience, whereas with Ubuntu, it's close, right? But it's just not quite there. But that's just a matter of somebody doing the work. You know, FreeBSD's first-class experience wasn't that good until, you know, myself and Thomas Soom and Kyle Evans and a bunch of people went and did the work to make it better. Like, it could boot off ZFS, but the, you know, boot environments working took a long time. And then in, only if you installed this extra shell script that wasn't part of the operating system and then, you know, the bootloader didn't help you at all. Like, if you got stuck, you had to go and drop into a, it wasn't even a shell, just a command prompt and type a bunch of weird things. Yeah. As somebody who wrote the first two different incredibly complex how-tos for how to get your FreeBSD installed on ZFS in the first place, I would concur with that. <laughs> it It's easy now. It has not always been easy. It used to be a real pain in the butt. And honestly, if back in those days virtualization had been as easy and everywhere as it is now, I probably would have arrived at the same conclusions then that I have now. It's just, yeah, ZFS on is just not worth it. Just, you know, do your important stuff there and who cares about the boot environment? So kind of to Jim's point about customizing the way the file system's laid out and so on for ZFS and boot environments, it's very much a kind of a do as I say, not as I do and so on. The Like the defaults that I built into the FreeBSD installer are not what I use because my use case is different. I want to do things special. And so I have this Pudrier script that compiles a, a whole boot environment for me with a different layout because 
you know, what I need is a bit different than what the default is. And again, you could same thing of what you're going to want on a server is probably going to be a lot different than what you're going to want on your laptop as far as the layout. Oftentimes it's just separate the operating system from the rest. But like on my laptop, all the packages need to be part of the boot environment so that if something screws up X, I can roll back all of that easily. And, you know, that's part of the operating system. But on my server, the packages are not part of the operating system. They're kind of this bolted on thing and I'll just fix them if they screw up. And I don't need those to be in lockstep with the operating system the same way as I do on my laptop. Or in my case, on a server, anything on the server itself is irrelevant. All the real work gets done in VMs. Right. Or like even on my servers, like there's one data set under user local somewhere, probably. That's the only thing that's unique about this machine. Every other part of the file system is either ephemeral, like var log, or shouldn't be modified from the golden image ever. Uh, or anything that is, is just can get thrown away and overwritten with the next golden image. Yeah. The only thing on one of my virtualization servers that's actually directly on the server, you know, inside its own environment that I don't consider ephemeral is, uh, you know, under Etsy QMU, the XML definitions for the hardware for the VMs. Uh, I actually mount that from a ZFS data set so that should something happen to the boot environment, or I need to reinstall the whole server or whatever. I don't lose the hardware definitions for the VMs. Once I've done my 15 minute, you know, quick reinstall of Ubuntu and the few packages necessary to spin up KVM and ZFS, I just mount that data set back under, you know, Etsy QMU where it goes and poof, there's all my VM definitions and I can immediately start them. Yeah, like for scaling the servers, there's a separate data set called slash CFG and a couple of files in ETC are actually symlinks to it. So the rc.conf that knows the machine's IP address is there, the SSH host keys and that kind of stuff and a couple other things that are like the identity of the machine end up in that data set and everything else in ETC gets overwritten with the new image every time we do an upgrade, even if it's just a minor one. And only the personality of the machine, which is literally like IP address and SSH key, uh, is the only thing that really persists through an upgrade. It's interesting that neither of you massively automate things with something like Ansible. Does this come down to what we were talking about when we discussed the Caddy web server, the difference between the sysadmin mindset and the DevOps mindset? Not exactly, at least in my case. For myself, it's a question of, yeah, you're right. Uh, automation allows you to scale up massively faster. And... To be perfectly frank, I don't want my fuck-ups to scale quite that far. Uh, if I screw up, I'd like to do it one thing at a time rather than just, you know, with one mistyped line and hit enter. Oh, God, I just, you know, screwed up an entire organization or maybe lots of organizations. I can easily move fast enough, uh, you know, deploying things one at a time, uh, you know, using shortcuts like gold images, whatever. I can more than keep up with the scale of machines that I need to deal with, which is, you know, somewhere in the high hundreds to, you know, it's probably somewhere over a thousand at this point. But uh, it's just not that hard to do that way, for myself at least. Whereas if I did go the Ansible route, it would open up a huge window into me being able to screw up far faster and wider than I'm able to all on my own. You know, at Scale Engine, we use Puppet. And, you know, part of the reason why we can get away with some of the stuff we do with the golden image is that, you know, Puppet's going to recreate the accounts for the right people on the machine so that people can SSH in. And so we don't have to bake that into the golden image. There's a couple of bootstrap accounts, but not everybody's account needs to be baked into the golden image because as soon as the machine boots up and gets hooked up with Puppet and gets authorized by our puppet master, it's going to have the accounts for everybody else. And then the machine will learn what its roles are. Oh, I need to have this container in this container and it'll spin up the right jails and, and install the right services and make it all happen. 
So we do use a bit of Puppet for that. But like on my laptop, if I get a new laptop, it's generally I'm just going to ZFS send my home directory over because it's got, you know, my Firefox and Thunderbird profile. And that way I don't have to reconfigure all my accounts. And outside of that, again, I'm like Jim, I prefer to just package install Xorg, Lumina, Firefox, Thunderbird, and a, a short list of applications. If it's really bad, there's a package query primes or something it's called that will give you a list of just the packages you manually installed, not all the dependencies that also got installed. And you can just pipe XRGs that over to package and have it install all exactly the same things as what's on my laptop. But again, like Jim, I prefer to just only the programs I think are installed on my laptop are installed unless I end up needing them at some point. Yeah, you can do, you can do the same thing with apt and dpackage, and I've done that before when I really needed to. Usually, if I'm going to do something like that, it's because somebody hosed a server that I did not control before, and I do not understand everything that's going on, on that server, and I just need its replacement to be doing all the things. If it's something of my own, then maybe there's something that's on that old laptop that I haven't used in three years. I don't need to reinstall that on the new one. And if I miss something in my initial setup, well, wherever I am, wherever I happen to be, oh, darn, I forgot to install GIMP, apt install GIMP. That's fine. I can reinstall a thing that I forgot whenever I discover that I need it. And if I don't need it, then I'm better off for not having installed it. Right. Well, we better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send in your questions or feedback. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Ressington. I'm at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.